All right. Good evening, church. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Thank you, uh, elders, again, for allowing me this opportunity. Um, last week, we were in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, and so this week, we're going to be moving into chapter 20, if you want to go ahead and turn there. You know, two things from chapter 20. Well, stepping back into chapter 19, where we saw at the end of chapter 19, two kings on different trajectories. David is now uh, on his path to becoming king and taking those steps in that journey. And, and Saul is, um, as we last saw him, lying naked on the ground and stripped of his, um, of his royalty and his throne. And so uh, we move into chapter 20 now. And, you know, I'll just give you right off the bat two main themes of chapter 20. Um, the first being we see the display of brotherly love between Jonathan and David. This chapter really cements that. And I was, I was thinking about it this week, such a unique bond that they have, such a unique love that they have, and I was trying to think of something that I, I could equate it to and, and why they would have that bond. Um, Pastor Greg pointed out a few weeks ago that they were both uh, sons of men that didn't value them, and so maybe they saw that in one another. I think um, it's safe to say they saw each other's character in one another, um, the, the type of uh, high character men that they were. I think it's um, also safe to say that God played a role in it, uh, putting uh, them on each other's heart. And the one thing that I could equate it to, and actually you see in both of these men that they were, they were both uh, military men. And uh, that's where I could bring it to in my own life is that you know, it's so unique that you would not grow up with someone. You would not um, have share any type of commonality with someone and that you could meet someone like, uh, peop- like I did in the military and like others did in the military from a completely different walk of life. And in a very short time, you see something common in one another and you develop this bond that you're willing uh, to give your life for that person. Um, such a unique thing. So we'll submit that uh, here in chapter 20. And then also, uh, this is very cool. The second thing that we see in chapter 20 is, you know, I think so often in, in church, in our modern church, we want to focus on the New Testament and we want to focus on um, Jesus and uh, the writings of Paul and we want to stay there and uh, just everything's a new covenant. You also hear things like, an Old Testament God, things like that. But really, the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God. It's an unchanging God, which we talked a little bit about last week, of the, you know, God's promises and His unchanging nature. But also, Jesus was there the whole time. Jesus was there at creation. Uh, Jesus was there throughout, you know, actually made appearances throughout the Bible as an angel of the Lord coming to people. And Jesus is here now in our text. And that's so cool that we can look at this text and and it points us to Jesus. Jesus didn't separate himself from the Old Testament. He actually said, I'm the fulfillment of the law. And so we will uh, be able to see a wonderful example of that in chapter 20 here. Um, So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, And came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? 
And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. So David now has left Naoth at Ramah and come to Gibeah to meet Jonathan. And his intention in doing this, you know, David could have just stayed at Naoth at, at, in Ramah. You know, he's safe there. He's with Samuel, the prophet. Saul's already sent people to come, assassins to come, and Saul even came himself. And every time they come, the Holy Spirit intervenes and they begin to prophesy. He's safe there. So why is he coming out of that safety and stepping back into this? And the reason why is because he's seeking reconciliation. He's making one last attempt here to reconcile with Saul. So he comes to Jonathan because he trusts Jonathan. They have this bond and they've made this covenant. And so a couple of takeaways from these first 11 verses that we see. One is we're getting a firsthand perspective into David's training to be king. Last week we walked through David's faithfulness to God's calling throughout his life and at each step of that calling. This is not the first time that David's been faced with, with the threat of death. You know, he's a warrior. We saw it when he uh, battled Goliath. And when he was a young man and, and went to face Goliath, we saw nothing of any type of hesitation. We saw no type of uh, nervousness from David. And so now that he's facing this trial, we're seeing the evidence of how this season of David's life is starting to take a toll on him. You know, the constant onslaught from Saul has made him ask these rhetorical questions that we see at the start of the text where he says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And the reason why he's asking these questions of Jonathan is because he's trying to gauge Jonathan's loyalty to him. He knows that he hasn't done anything. He knows this in his heart, but he wants to see what's Jonathan's reaction going to be. So we see this wisdom that is starting to come into David because he's facing these certain trials. 
that had he not faced these trials, who knows if he would have been able to gauge these types of things. Uh, this is a great example of how God uses trials in our lives. It's not a situation that David would have ever asked for, but God knows the experience that David needs to become king. You know, we oftentimes have an incorrect view of struggles or trials in our own life, and you know something that we hear a lot, which is just bad theology, is God is testing me to see how I'm going to react. God wants to see how I'm going to react in this struggle or in this trial. God wants to know what I'm going to do. He's given me this, this test to see what I'll do. But we know this is bad theology because God has foreknowledge of everything. God is an all-knowing God. He doesn't have to see what we're going to do through the trial. He already knows what we're going to do. The trial has come, one, to point us to Him, but also that we would see in ourselves the merit of our own faith, that we would see how we're going to handle this situation. It's sometimes bad, sometimes good, right? But then later on in our walk, when we come across these, these same things, we can say, oh, I've been here before. I've seen this before. I know how God saw me through this. Um, I just love this. My, one of my favorite, actually my favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. Um, it's just so powerful. I, I love it throughout. And this is uh, Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. I love the promise that's in here, and you know that verse 28 is so popular, but I don't want to miss what comes before that, which is just an amazing promise that it speaks so well to me because how often are we in a struggle and we don't even know what to pray for? We don't even know what to look for. And what this is telling us is that while we are in that, we are the saints, those who are called by God. While we are in that, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, asking for the things that we need according to God's will. Such an amazing promise. But then also, back to verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So not just the things that we're happy about work for our good. All things work for our good. And not just this you know, uh, secular worldview, oh, fate, uh, you know, I believe in fate, I believe in, you know, everything happens for a reason type of worldview. But this is saying, for those who are called according to his purpose, that is for us who are saved, God is working all things for our good. Such an incredible promise. 
Uh, I think about this. I think about struggles and journeys and things like that. And I think about when I was uh, in boot camp. I, I, I joined the Air Force when I was 18 years old. I left about a month after I graduated high school. And I actually signed up for it the summer before that. So I had an extreme case of senioritis my whole senior year of high school. I, I thought I knew everything. I knew what I was going to do already. It was already planned out for me. And I even had the thought that, you know, I had a pretty, um, pretty strict upbringing. And so I thought, well, you know, boot camp really isn't even for people like me because I know how to listen. You know, I know how to follow rules. I've, you know, I've, I've been a good kid throughout my whole life. And, you know, I don't even, you know, I'll go do it because I got to do it. But, you know, it's not even for people like me, right? And so what a rude awakening that before I even, before, this is a true story, before I even left, I had to go down to Miami, and they, they even said, hey, drop them off. I lived, lived in Jupiter at the time. Drop them off at the office in West Palm. We'll take them down to Miami. My parents were like, no, we'll take you down there, and uh, you know, we'll have dinner, and we'll see you off. And so we get to the hotel that we're going to be at, um, that I'm going to stay at that night, and they'll leave early in the morning. They'll take me away. And there was a restaurant in the hotel, and I'm just sitting at the restaurant. I can't even touch my food. I just have this churning inside of me of, in, of what's about to happen, the weight of what's happening. And, I, and as I look back on it now, I even think, you know, what I didn't know then is the weight that I'm truly about to become an adult on my own. There's a clear demarcation line in my life. And might have taken a couple bites. I go, we walk out to the car. I don't even know if I made it to the car to say goodbye to them. And I started to upchuck right there in the parking lot. And just intense emotion that I had never felt before in my life, crying, they're crying. My mom said my dad didn't sleep for like two or three weeks. I mean, just this intense emotion. And it was clear that I needed what I was about to go through because I was a boy. And, I'm, and I was still a boy for a little while after that, you know. But I needed what it was coming in front of me. And not only that, not only did I need it because I was a boy, I needed it because I needed the instruction that was there for the task that was in front of me. I needed to learn the ways to do the right things. I needed to learn the attention to detail. I needed to learn to be broken and humbled to listen to these things. And this is, you know, we, some, of, some of us might think of something like boot camp as, oh, that's exciting or that's daunting or whatever it is. But really what it is is it is what is needed for the task at hand. It's not a, it's not a fun thing. You know, there is like that 1% of people who might, who are crazy and might think it's fun. It's not a, it's not a fun ordeal, but, but it was six weeks for me. And I can tell you that even in my life today, almost on a daily basis, I use the things that I learned in those six weeks. And probably the thing I use the most is knowing that I have a belief in myself that I can handle these stressful situations. Because what they're teaching you is to put you in stressful, safe situations because you're going to be 
in life or death stressful situations. And so that's something that was needed. Another example of this, even this week, and this is pertinent to my walk with Christ, is, you know, I had a time in my life probably about five or six years ago or so where I went through um, an inner healing class and out at Dunklin Memorial Camp out in Okeechobee. And, I mean, outside of my salvation, probably one of the biggest jumps in my walk was going through that class um, because of trauma that had happened in my life before. I had developed all of these bad habits, and probably the worst habit of all that I developed is that I was really good at listening to the lies of Satan. And I would take those lies and I would stuff them in my heart, right? And it wasn't ever really a, pro a problem so much. I kind of got by here and there. But like I said last week, God sent me a gift in my wife. And so the intensity of that relationship brought it out. The, the close nature and intimacy of that relationship brought out all of this dysfunction that I had dealt with, right, from my life. Now, she had a great upbringing, so she didn't have any of that. <laughs> but anyways, we, so this week, some of that started to creep up again, and it, which is uncommon now, praise the Lord, is uncommon now in our relationship. But, you know, there was a time of anger and a fight, and we stepped away, and I was back in that place, and immediately I knew that I was in the wrong, and I gave myself some time to cool down. But unlike in my past, before learning how to deal with these things, I didn't stuff it. I took it to God immediately, and I didn't think, oh, you know, all of these things, and I could have gone to friends, I could have gone to the world, I could have gone to all of these other outlets, and they would have told me a lot of things, much of which probably stuff I would have wanted to hear to justify. But I wasn't saying, why has this happened to me? I was saying, what are you trying to show me right now? What is the answer for what's going on right now? And it came almost immediately. And what a blessing it was is that I needed to pray more, which you think, oh, you know, what a revelation. You needed to pray more. But <laughs> not even, not so much just pray more, but be intentional about praying together with my wife, which is something that we basically never do, that we would come together and that we would intentionally pray for our own needs, and so we have this new intimacy because one another, each of us are hearing our own prayers to God, but then we can flip it the next night and we can pray for one another, and we know each other deeper, we know each other's needs, and so the things that maybe we think, oh, well, you should just know or the things that we might get bent out of shape about and the things we might say, oh, well, you know, they should know that. Well, now 
Now she does know that about me, and now I do know that about her. And what a wonderful thing that, we, that I was able to go through this struggle years ago. And this is just one of the fruits, one of the blessings, and I'm sure it will come again. Because I don't know about you, but my journey to sanctification looks a lot like this. And like this. <laughs> it's not so much a straight trajectory. So I know that I will be in those times again, but I also know that God has already prepared me and when I'm in those times, he's preparing me for new things, which is just an amazing promise. Uh, Pastor Greg makes a point to speak about this a lot, and I love it about our church, is that you know, the men that are elders of our church, a prerequisite for them to be elders is that they would be broken, that they would have experienced brokenness in their life. And even the Bible speaks about, you know, when, when electing elders for a church that they would be older men. And, you know, we have this thing in the modern church that it seems like there's, there's this great push to be younger. There's this great push to be hipper, to be multimedia, and to uh, come up with the new hot thing. You know, people's attention spans can't, can't sit and watch one thing. It's got to be moving and popping. But... You know, I don't want 20-year-old me to be a spiritual leader to myself. I don't know about you guys. I don't even want 25, 26, 27. I'm 32. I don't want 32-year-old me to be a spiritual leader in the way that we have these great examples. And it's such a disservice that's done, at, you know, even in the in the way of separating services generationally, you know, traditional and, you know, now a newer, younger, hipper service at a later time. Because, and Pastor Greg speaks about this so often, that we need each other. It's a wonderful thing about a multi-generational church is that you have a younger drive and maybe newer things, newer ideas and excitement, but you also have an older generation, what a valuable thing of people who have walked through these same trials, people who have experienced these same things, that they were in these same moments and even now are in these same moments of not knowing what to pray for. But they can lean on the experience. And someone like myself gets to get the fruit of that by having those close relationships and being coming together in a church service and not just going to a church service where everyone looks like me. The second takeaway from these first 11 verses is we get to see the devotion of Jonathan and David put into practice. David is looking for reassurance of Jonathan's loyalty. And Jonathan's answer to him in verse 4 is, Whatever you say, I will do. So amazing, God has not left David alone in this trial. We know that God himself is there to walk through every trial with us. But what a precious gift from God when he gives us a brother or sister in Christ to lean on. And so the plan that David and Jonathan have now is devised. And the plan is that Saul has what is essentially a staff meeting at the beginning of each month. They're going by a lunar calendar. 
And because of his role in the kingdom, David is expected to be at this meeting. And if Saul asks where David is, Jonathan will tell him that David has returned to his home of Bethlehem for his family's own new moon sacrifice. Uh, this type of sacrifice is referred to in Numbers 10.10. 10. It says, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at your beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God, I am the Lord your God. And so if Saul responds positively to David's absence, then they know that Saul is ready for reconciliation. But if he responds in anger, they know that it's time for David to flee once and for all. And Jonathan, and this is uh, beginning now in, in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord your God, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So in verses 12 and 13, Jonathan's making an oath once again to David to tell him the truth about his father's intentions. But we see at the, ver at the end of verse 13, he's recognizing that the Lord is no longer with his father and is now with David. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And so verse 14, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan and David, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan is now making yet another covenant with David. But this covenant has particular importance. This covenant not only binds David to Jonathan once again, but to Jonathan's offspring in the future. Jonathan is giving recognition to the fact that not only will David be king in place of what is thought to be Jonathan's birthright, but David's reign could possibly outlive Jonathan. And so he looks to protect his offspring in the future. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at the mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. 
So, he's, so Jonathan's making this plan. Go out there, hide. I'm going to shoot these three arrows. I'm going to miss intentionally. No one else is going to know about it. This is just going to be between me and you. And I, if I say, hey, the arrows are on your side to the boy, come on, everything's safe. Verse 22, but if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So the logistics of the plan are laid out. And once again, Jonathan reaffirms his covenant, the covenant that has been made between them. So verse 24, so David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, and on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today. So at first, Saul's not suspicious because he thinks David must be unclean. And if you're ceremonial unclean, if you have that ceremonial uncleanliness, you have to miss the meal for that night. You can't come sit at the table with them. But that doesn't apply to days after that. So his absence on the second day gets Saul's attention. And so now Jonathan is going to put into action the plan that he and David had laid out. Verse 28, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So he's put it to Saul now. Let's see how Saul reacts. Verse 30, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. (laughs) Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So didn't go well. <laughs> the plan is not as if they had hoped. He reacted in anger, to say the least. And we see this is some coarse language. The reason being is that, one, not only is Saul making this attempt to drag Jonathan down into the mud with him, but the, the particulars of this language is that what Saul is saying is that he knows, him and Jonathan both know, that David is going to be king. And he's going to be, in king, he's going to be king instead of Jonathan. And so now Jonathan giving up that birthright is as if he was a bastard. And so he uses this language of, to the shame of your mother's nakedness, 
in such a way that he's trying to ignite the same anger. It's a, it's a desperate attempt to put this wedge between Saul or between David and Jonathan. Because Saul knows he sees the love that they share for one another. And he's saying, it's not just about me. Look what you have to lose. And that, we see that again reiterated in, in verse 31. It says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan recognizes that same love, that same character, the covenants that have been made. And even though Saul is making these desperate attempts, Jonathan's not having it. And Saul, back to his old tricks, but Saul hurled his spear at him. Saul must not be a very good spear thrower. <laughs> I'd have to go back and read. I don't know if we have any uh, accounts of when he accurately hit someone with a spear, but we have several accounts of him missing with his spear. <laughs> Maybe it was the Holy Spirit intervening. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. I would say so. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, excuse me, as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan is saying this to David. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's, boys gathered, so Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And so we can imagine the heaviness that Jonathan feels. It's clear. We have several examples and illustrations of the love that Jonathan has for David, the brotherly love that he has for him. Can you imagine the hope that they felt of the things that they could possibly do together, the ventures that they could have in the future? Imagine maybe some of you with your own siblings, if that would be a relationship like that, or some of your own best friends. And basically, he's coming out to this field to tell his friend that it's not going to happen, that things are never going to be the same. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn 
both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And that closes out chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. And so, we leave it now, and one of the main themes besides, you know, we talked first of all of this relationship, we're going to see this relationship cemented, and the primary means by which we see that relationship cemented is that over and over again, not, throughout, not just throughout 1 Samuel, but in, even in this chapter alone, it is reiterated the covenant that has been made. That is the thing that binds their relationship. And over and over again, this covenant is made. And so I want to go back to verse 14 and briefly examine that covenant that was made, that specific, particular covenant, special covenant that was made in verse 14 through 17. If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. That phrase, those, those two words, steadfast love, we talked about that a little bit last week. If you can remember, David was running and had fled to his house and his wife lets him out the window. In that series of events, David records in uh, Psalm 59, and three times in that verse, we see those words, steadfast love. Steadfast love. This covenant is unique and set apart from the other covenants made by David and Jonathan. Those words, steadfast love, is what makes it unique. We see these words um, throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 20. As Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God, Exodus 26, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We see it in Psalm 63, Psalm 63, 1 through 3. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Uh, in other translations, uh, like New American Standard, King James, it's, it's translated in loving kindness, one word, loving kindness. 
Uh, also other translations translated as kindness or mercy. And hesed is used to describe a faithful love. It's a special kind of love, a covenantal love. Uh, R.C. Sproul called it a loyal love. What makes this use of hesed in verse 14 unique between Jonathan and David is that all the other examples that we have of hesed are between God and man. Is man crying out to God, speaking of his hesed, or God telling man and reinforcing in him his hesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And the hesed, the, the loving kindness, truly is a form of grace. That's what we're speaking of now. It's not anything that's earned. It's something that's given. It's a covenant that's made. So this covenant is made that David will show his grace to Jonathan while he is still here and also to his ancestors after he dies. So if you will, I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 6, just real quick. So here now in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David, we fast forward. Hopefully I haven't stepped on some toes by covering something that will be covered later on in the study of the kings. I'm sure the Holy Spirit will inspire some new things. But David is well established as king. And so... He is remembering this covenant that was made years before. And so David asks of the servants of Saul, if there's anyone else that they know of in the kingdom that belongs to Saul's house. And the servant says, yes, Jonathan has a son. And so David says, bring him to me. What we found out... Uh, back in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, is that this son was crippled. And so this son now from a house that is no longer uh, the royalty and being a crippled in this society was more than likely a beggar. What was once set to be this illustrious life for him, now he's in the lowest of lows. And his name is Mephibosheth, which I considered naming my son to come, but my wife was strongly against. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. So if I mess it up again, you know I know it. Starting in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my tables always. Imagine what Mephibosheth must have been thinking 
before this. He doesn't know why David has called him. But we know throughout history that when there is a change in families and royalty, one of the first moves of the new family is they're going to wipe out anyone who might sneak up from behind and try to claim, right? And so Mephibosheth surely knows that it's potential. You know, Saul was this great enemy to David, and he is in that bloodline. So he is David's enemy in the world's eyes. Verse 8, And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for me, a dead dog such as I? The humility of Mephibosheth. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And so I pointed out at the start that one of the themes, the first very apparent theme of chapter 20 is that we have this strengthening of the relationship between David and Jonathan. But the second theme that we find is an example of the Old Testament pointing us to the gospel. You know, the Bible tells us that David is a Messiah-like figure. Jesus is even called Son of David in the Bible. And so we see years before a covenant that was made that Mephibosheth had no part in, did nothing about it, had no merit to it. And we see the fruit of that now. David was alive roughly a thousand years before Jesus came. You know, we have, once again, what a great thing about being able to dive back into the Old Testament. You know, the, the New Testament's roughly about 100 years of time. And, you know, we, I, I love the whole canon of Scripture. It's not to say one is better than the other, but in the Old Testament, we have thousands of years to see the characteristics of God. And we have this example here that points us to Jesus. Because we are Mephibosheth. We are the dead dog. We have zero merit to the inheritance. But because of the hesed, because of the loving kindness, the grace 
the covenant that was made through Jesus Christ. We who are enemies of Christ. We who, you know, Mephibosheth had nothing to do with anything. Our sins put Christ on the cross. True enemies of Christ. That if we would humble ourselves, not that we would do anything special, not that we would do any type of works, not that we would learn our Bible in any special way or pray any special way, but that we would humble ourselves and recognize God for who He is and recognize Christ for who He is. And in the twinkling of an eye, which is the speed that it takes for light to bounce off your eyes, it changes. And from that day forward, much like Mephibosheth, not only is our life spared, which would be wonderful, you know, that we're spared hell, is an amazing thing. But not only that, that we would be considered sons of God, sons and daughters of God, and we would eat at the table forever. What an incredible promise hidden here in this scripture. And so we take this, and I hope that, you, that we take this tonight, you take this tonight, I take this tonight, and we live it out in our own lives because thankfully, you know, a lot of us are saved. I'm not going to assume all of us are saved, but a lot of us are saved. And so just an, a reassurance a wonderful encouragement to rest in that, but also a new message to give to those who are not, a new place to bring them in the Bible, a new place to see that not only was God, not only, rather, was Jesus at the beginning of creation, and not only was he in the gospel and in the New Testament, and in Revelation, but here in 2 Samuel and throughout the Old Testament, clear evidence of the gospel message playing out. And so with that, as we close, I'd like to just read Psalm 40, a psalm from David. You can turn there if you'd like. Where Saul, where sorry, where, where David in Psalm is recognizing who God is. He's crying out for his help, but also he is he knows that the, of the covenant that is between him and God, and he speaks of that steadfast love, that loving kindness, that has said. That is between them. Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, 
to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have not spoken, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregations. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love your hesed, your loving kindness, your grace, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch me who, who seek to snatch away my life let those be turned turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me aha aha but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you may those who love your salvation Say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We recognize who you are. The world cries out to you, Lord. There's evidence all around us of who you are. And even though the world is blinded by Satan and does not want to recognize it, your word tells us that they know because it's plain. It's clear, and we praise you for who you are, Lord. We delight in who you are. We, we rest in who you are. What a wonderful gift to know that we are loved by you, to know that the one who created all the things in the universe, who holds all things together, who created things that we don't even know about or couldn't even understand, who covers the big things that are going on in this world, 
the big problems. That same God cares about us on an intimate and individual level. How amazing you are, Lord. I thank you for your grace. I know that there's nothing that I have to offer. There's nothing that any of us have to offer. None of us are fully equipped for the task. None of us have the merit to enter into your kingdom. But because of your love for us, you gave us your son. And he brought forth a wonderful, amazing covenant. That if we would just believe, that if we would recognize who you are and who he is, and that we have nothing without him. That you would not only save us from our sins, but you would welcome us into your kingdom. Like the Bible says, that Jesus would go and prepare a house for us, prepare a room for us in your house, Lord. What an amazing thing. I thank you so much for this church, for this body. Thank you for their, their love for one another, their love for me, and their love to, to grow in your word, Lord, to learn. And I pray that we would love one another, we would encourage one another, and, and come alongside and, and strengthen one another, but that we would not just stop there. And that the other days of the week, the other hours of the week, whoever it may be that we encounter, that we would not just show of your love with our actions and our attitude, that we would not just be witnesses with our attitude, but that we would look for those moments that you open up for us, Lord, that you open up for us to be your vessels, and that we would recognize those moments and we would share of the work that has been done in our life that we would have joy of the covenant of the grace that you have extended to us. I pray for all these people that you would keep them and protect them until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.